Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Well, let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we consider his word together. Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks. Thank you that you're a God who reveals. Thank you that you're a God who wants to be known by his people. Thank you that you're a God who saves. Thank you that we are not left in our sin with no hope, with no option to address it. And we thank you for sending your son Jesus as king. It's to his triumphal entry now that we turn our attention, God, and we pray that as we do, that you would stir in our hearts uh, your truth. Awaken in us a deeper understanding of what exactly it is that you've done in your sending of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. With royalty comes recognition, especially these days if you sit on the throne or if you hold the highest office in the land, people are going to recognize you every single place you go. Now you might think that royals wearing disguises in public is a relatively recent phenomenon related to the press and photographers, but would you believe even Nero was guilty of the practice. Uh, when he became emperor of Rome, he was only a teenager, so he would throw on a cap or a wig to mask his identity when he joined his friends to pull pranks or even worse, to commit violent crimes around the city. That sounds like Nero, doesn't it? We're all familiar with the more recent examples of Princess Diana's disguises to avoid the paparazzi, and even Prince Charles was known to don a fake uh, nose and glasses uh, in order to go skiing in Switzerland to avoid being identified. But did you know that Queen Elizabeth once wore a disguise too? On VE Day in 1945, then a 19-year-old princess, she left Buckingham Palace in an auxiliary service uniform to celebrate Nazi Germany's surrender with her countrymen. And she partied through the night, even dancing in a conga line, completely unnoticed by most. Can you imagine Queen Elizabeth dancing in a conga line? <laughs> now, while these disguises were meant to have fun under the radar, some royal disguises were far more serious. In the summer of 1791, as the French Revolution was escalating, the royal family attempted to flee Paris by pretending to be German nobility, and they almost succeeded until their carriage broke down and a postmaster passing by their coach recognized King Louis leading to their arrest. Now, throughout Israel's history, recorded in the Old Testament, God promised a coming Messiah. Messiah simply means anointed one. Anointing is just a special way to set apart leaders using oil. And this Messiah, or Christ in Greek, would bring about the redemption of his people Israel. This king would establish his reign over an everlasting kingdom. But this Messiah wouldn't just be a king. He would also be a prophet, and he would also be a priest. He would wed together the three anointed offices of Israel into one leader as God's very own son. But this royal, the most important royal of all time, the one promised to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, wouldn't need to wear a disguise when he came on the scene because how would people even know what the Messiah looked like when he finally arrived? Well, God gave us many signs so that we would recognize him. He would be a Jew from the line of Abraham, the tribe of Judah, and the family of David. 
He would be born to a virgin in the little town of Bethlehem. Hundreds of prophecies would prepare the people of Israel and everyone, really, to recognize and receive the king when he came. In our passage this morning, Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, Jesus fulfills one of those very prophecies. And in so doing, he announces without saying a word that he, the king, God's king, Messiah, has finally come. And this is the theme of our passage. King Jesus has come. Behold him, believe him, and beg for his mercy. And there are three movements in our passage. The promise of his triumphal entry, the fulfillment of that prophecy, and then a commotion in Jerusalem once he arrives. Now, when I was younger, I always felt badly for Jesus. Uh, why did he pick Judas as a friend? Why did he spend so much time in Jerusalem when he knew that there were leaders there that wanted to, to kill him? If only he had hidden himself or disguised himself so that he could have lived a longer life. Just imagine all the good that he could have done if he'd lived for longer. These were the thoughts of eight-year-old Matthew Jabert. But King Jesus wanted to be seen and heard and recognized and known. And he came so that people would understand that he was the Messiah, so that they could put their full trust in him. And he came to give his life away. And we have his gospels preserved for us so that we can put our trust in him. So let's start this morning by considering this powerful prophecy, starting with verse 1 of Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Now, let's just pause right there. Uh, our standard approach to preaching at Cherrydale is to work our way through books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And sometimes we'll step out of our ongoing series to consider a theme or a topic in God's Word for a sermon or a brief series, or to celebrate seasons in the liturgical calendar like we're doing for the next two weeks. But whenever we drop into a book like we're doing today, we always need to consider briefly the context so that we don't unintentionally lift meaning from the book, from the text that isn't intended by God. So before we look more deeply at Matthew 21, I want to provide just a brief structure and summary of this gospel. Now, Matthew opens with this introduction to his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1. He declares the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now we learn from the opening verse of this account that Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, purposed to present Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as God's promised anointed king. And more than the other three gospels, Matthew quotes the Old Testament to show his fellow Jews how Jesus fulfilled the words of the prophets. And Matthew is diligent to demonstrate Jesus' lineage all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and through David, the heroic king of Israel, to whom God had promised an everlasting throne. But they aren't the only major figures from Israel's history that Matthew highlights in his gospel, even though they open it. He also emphasizes the ways that Jesus brought to mind previous prophets like Elisha and Jeremiah and Moses, if you look carefully. Take, for example, the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel. He carefully constructs his writing to show the powerful parallels between Jesus and Moses, the prophet leader who led the Jewish people to freedom from Egypt. 
Following their births, they were both spared from a tyrant's murder in Pharaoh and Herod. They both passed through water, Moses and Israel through the Red Sea, and Jesus through the baptismal waters of the Jordan. Before experiencing temptation in the wilderness, Moses for 40 years and Jesus for 40 days. They also went up thereafter a mountain to deliver God's commandments, Moses the Jewish law and Jesus a new law in his Sermon on the Mount. And we even see in Matthew's arrangement of his gospel, he arranged it according to five large teaching sections intending to mirror the five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the point that he's trying to make is that Jesus is bringing to us a new law. He's a new Moses. He's the faithful Israel. He's the perfectly obedient son that God's people as a nation had failed to be throughout their history. And Jesus also demonstrates himself to be an authoritative teacher a compassionate healer, and a powerful miracle worker. He refers to himself as a prophet. And in Matthew 16, when Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is, Peter confesses what Matthew has already told us in the very opening verse, and that is that he is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. And so when we arrive in chapter 21, we find Jesus in the days leading up to his death and resurrection where he makes unmistakably clear to an ever-growing group of people that he is the king and he has indeed come. Look again at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, the exact location of Bethphage is unclear, but Matthew tells us that it was on or near the Mount of Olives, which is east of Jerusalem, opposite the temple. And we might be tempted to gloss over these introductory verses, but Jesus is telling us several things here. First, he had specific supernatural knowledge about what the disciples would find in a village that they couldn't even see at the time that he gave those instructions. He also refers to himself as the Lord. Whether this was a direct appeal to divinity, which he does on many occasions, or simply a claim to his role as a master or teacher, either way, he's claiming some level of authority, even as he directs his disciples and they obey. And as he does 12 times in his gospel, Matthew tells us that this is a specific fulfillment of prophecy, an oracle from the prophet of Zechariah, which was delivered around 518 B.C., verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." As we'll soon see, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. But let's look more carefully at the original oracle. As always, the context of the prophecy is important. Zechariah was a prophet to the Israelites who had returned to Jerusalem after their 70-year exile in Babylon. So this is about 6th century B.C., uh, 500 years before Jesus is even born. And there was great discouragement among the Jewish people at this time. The temple was in ruins and in need of rebuilding. There hadn't been a king since Zedekiah. And the people were wondering how in the world God's promises to Abraham and David would be fulfilled. 
Matthew quotes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So if you compare the exact words, they might differ, differ slightly. But Zechariah's original prophecy opens with these words in chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. But Matthew uses a much more subdued invocation that he borrows from Isaiah. Say to the daughter of Zion. Why is that? Well, perhaps because the nation as a whole failed to celebrate. They, they chose rejecting over rejoicing. Yes, a remnant would rejoice, but many, if not most, would not. Most importantly, the leaders of the nation. This prophetic picture that Zechariah paints is a king coming on a donkey. But a king? The monarchy had come to an end during the Babylonian exile. What king could the people of Judah possibly behold? Well, hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, just like this one, portray the Messiah as a future king who would deliver God's people. Israel had endured centuries of captivity and oppression under neighboring nations and conquering superpowers like Assyria and Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. So many interpreted these prophecies to mean that Messiah would come with military might to deliver them from these earthly pagan powers. And in light of Israel's history, it's a reasonable expectation. But look again at what Zechariah was instructed to say to the people of Jerusalem in verse 5. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This isn't a picture of war or victory. This promised king will not be proud or boastful, but humble. That's not really a description you would expect of a monarch. But the Messiah wouldn't be overly impressed with his own sense of self-importance. He would be gentle and considerate and meek, strength under control. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus spoke these words and he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. It's the exact same Greek word that Matthew uses later in chapter 21 and translated humble. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus has already described himself as gentle and lowly. And only the sinless Son of God can say, in essence, look at how humble I am and actually stay humble as he says it. Now Matthew points back to Zechariah's prophecy that promised a humble king coming on a donkey to prepare us for Jesus' fulfillment, that he is Messiah. The donkey is another symbol that should stand out to us. You might expect a conquering king to come riding in victoriously on a mighty, powerful steed, a valiant war horse, perhaps. Or maybe in a chariot, the ancient sign of army strength. But a donkey? A beast of burden? That hardly gives the picture of power. How on earth does a king save his people on a donkey? Beasts of burden were appropriate for a man of peace, like a prophet or a merchant, to ride, but not a king. And yet, a man of peace is what Zechariah promised. His oracle continues in verse 10 of Zechariah 9 as he describes this humble, peaceful, messianic king. 
God says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he, that is the king, the Messiah, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, by conservative estimates, Matthew quotes the Old Testament 65 times in his gospel. And for 12 of those quotations, including this very prophecy from Zechariah, he provides a special introductory formula to let us know that that's what he's doing. Matthew worked hard to construct his gospel in such a way that Jesus' fulfillment of these prophecies would be unmistakable for his readers. This king of Zechariah 9 is clearly a different type of king. His rule will extend far beyond the borders of Israel or Judah. And Matthew is helping us to see that Jesus is the humble king of peace. And the instruction that the prophet gives to the daughter of Zion, that is to the people of Jerusalem, and by extension Judah and Israel, is to behold him. The word here for behold is a prompter of attention. It says, take note, look carefully, don't overlook this. This one-of-a-kind king will come on a donkey, and you don't want to miss him. Jesus is the humble king of peace. Behold him. Regardless of what type of leader we might favor or be drawn to, the prophet Zechariah and the evangelist Matthew are calling us to see Jesus for who he really is, the long-awaited, promised messianic king, the one who fulfilled Hundreds of very specific, unique prophecies, including this very one in Zechariah. And that's what Jesus does in the next verse. He fulfills this prophecy. And starting in verse 6, Matthew reveals that he's not only the humble king of peace, but he's also the saving son of David. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Now we shouldn't gloss over the fact that the disciples find the donkeys in the village just as Jesus described. His words were true, the sign of a true prophet. Little things like this should boost our confidence that he was indeed sent by God, not to mention fully God himself. But we received no indication as to how he arranged this loan. Now, of the four gospel writers, Matthew is the only one to indicate that there were two animals present in this procession, a donkey and her colt. Mark tells us that Jesus' colt had never been ridden, and so it would hardly be strange for a young donkey to have his mother close by as she carries a passenger for the very first time, in this case, Jesus. In fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9, the humble king rides the colt, sitting on a makeshift saddle of garments provided by his disciples. And as he approaches the city of Jerusalem from the east, from the Mount of Olives, throngs of people have gathered, most likely pilgrims who are headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish Passover festival that's just days away. And as Jesus travels toward the holy city, the people have several reflexive responses to his approach, starting in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Now as early as chapter 4 in Matthew's gospel, we find crowds following Jesus around as he ministers. 
He tended to gather these crowds wherever he went. And over the course of his three years of ministry, people were captivated by his authoritative teaching. Teaching that was unlike anything that they'd ever heard before. They were amazed by and drawn to his miraculous healings of various ailments from leprosy to blindness. And they had watched in complete and utter awe as he raised people from the dead. And after Jesus heals a blind man in Matthew 12, the people begin to ask, can this be the son of David? They sincerely want to know, is he the one? Is this the Messiah? Is this the promised king from David's line who will establish his throne forever? Well, the religious leaders of the day dismiss such such suggestions. But the crowds that gathered around Jesus throughout his earthly ministry were consistently wondering if he was the long-awaited king who would deliver God's people and set up his, God's kingdom. This, this kingdom emphasis is really strong in Matthew's gospel. And as Jesus approached the city on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, yet another crowd has gathered And John tells us in his gospel that this crowd greets him because they have heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. There's this bubbling anticipation that he is the one. Now, while the ESV says most of the crowd, the net translation better captures the construction. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. It's the only time Matthew uses this construction. And in the excitement of his arrival, the people instinctively show honor to Jesus by laying their garments on the road. Others are cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. It's an impromptu but eager effort to roll out the carpet for the king as he arrives. John tells us that the people greeted him with specifically palm branches. Now for Israel, palm branches were a national symbol of peace and prosperity. They were closely associated with, associated with another festival, the, the Feast of Booths. And Jews would wave palm branches up and down, north and south and east and west, as a sign of God's sovereignty over all of creation. And so the people are laying cloaks, and they're laying down branches, and they're waving those branches in national excitement and expectation. And they're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And as Mitchell mentioned, this is a quotation directly from Psalm 118. Hosanna means, save us, Lord. It's a cry for deliverance. And they're directing their cries to Jesus, the Son of David. That's what they're calling him. They see him as Messiah, the promised deliverer from David's line, whose kingdom would be forever. And they see him coming in the name of Yahweh. He's a representative of God. Hosanna in the highest. It's an appeal that goes all the way up to heaven. These crowds of Jesus most certainly expected the Messiah to redeem Israel by overthrowing Rome's occupying rule and establishing a physical earthly kingdom. We know this because even Jesus' closest disciple thought this. After the resurrection in Acts 1-6, he's already been raised from the dead. And they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're waiting for a physical kingdom and they're waiting for it now. But Israel's greatest enemy was not Rome or Greece or Medo-Persia or Babylon 
or Assyria or any other nation that attacked or occupied them throughout the centuries. The prophets make it clear that God would merely use those nations as his instruments to call Israel to repentance, and they would face judgment too. No, Israel's greatest enemy was not political or physical, but spiritual. It was from within. It was their own hard hearts. It was their own sin that deserved God's judgment. But in John chapter 8, Jesus promised freedom from the captivity of sin to all who would believe in him. That's why he came, to give his life as a ransom. The son of David, God's Messiah, came first to deliver his people spiritually, to save them from their sin. And as we'll see next week, he would accomplish this salvation through his death and resurrection as God's humble servant. He would give his life as an acceptable sacrifice on behalf of his people. Now, as we see the response of the crowds crying out for salvation, probably mostly for their, from their political oppression, what would you say is your greatest enemy? Is it the state of the world or our country? Is it a particular political persuasion? Is it your physical health? Perhaps the suffering that you've been enduring? Is it a broken relationship? Or a specific person or group of people? Is it your job or your finances? Or is it something else that comes right to mind as I ask those questions? The Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan is real, and he and his fellow fallen angels tempt us unto sin. They appeal to our hearts, our unrighteous desires, and our only hope is God. Only our Creator can save us from our sin and its judgment. So whatever we might be facing, we must acknowledge our true problem and we must embrace the only solution that God has provided for it. Jesus is the saving Son of David. Beg for His mercy. Cry out for God to save you. But make sure that you're asking Him to save you from the right thing. Because our circumstances might never change. But through faith in Jesus Christ, our relationship with God, wrecked and ruined by our sin, can be reconciled forever. And he's eager to shower his grace on all who will call on his holy name. Now in our third and final movement, as this rejected prophet moves into the city, Jesus stirs up a commotion in Jerusalem. Verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, this is quite a large crowd going before Jesus and following after him as he enters the city on a donkey. This would have been quite a scene. And as they beg him to save them and shout praises to him and to God, uh, this would have been an incredibly loud uh, situation. Luke tells us that Some of the Pharisees in the crowd told him to rebuke his disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees had already rejected him and they sought how they might put an end to this popular prophet some time ago. 
And this crowd chanting around Jesus causes some people to ask, who is this? Now, last summer, our family was at the Arlington County Fair waiting in line for a ride when it became quite clear that something was going on near us. Even over all the excited noise of the fair, we could see uh, and hear a hubbub in the next line over. People talking excitedly, taking really awkward selfies. And as it turned out, the famous comedian Jim Gaffigan was in the line with his family uh, without disguises. And his presence was causing quite a commotion. And those who didn't recognize him were asking, who is that? Now, I imagine this was just a really small picture of the commotion that Jesus and his large, noisy entourage stirred up as they entered into the busy city of Israel just days before the Passover feast. This would have been one of the most important days of the year, a festival when pilgrims flooded into the city from all over to celebrate this very high holiday. And those who didn't immediately recognize were asking, who is this? This is a great question a question that everyone confronted with the person of Jesus should ask, and not just ask, but answer, and not just answer, but answer correctly in accordance with how he revealed himself in his word, the Bible. And the crowds answer in verse 11. They say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This response provides another layer to the identity of this man on a donkey. He's both a king and a prophet, and what's particularly interesting is that the crowds identify him as a prophet from Nazareth because his very own hometown had rejected him at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 6. In John 7, there was even confusion over his hometown and the prophecies of the Messiah's birth. John chapter 7, verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. That is the prophet promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15. One who would be like Moses and speak for God. Others said, this is the Christ. That is the Messiah. Not knowing that the prophet and the Messiah were actually the same person. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Of course, Jesus was a descendant of David and had been born in Bethlehem. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And that confusion over Jesus' identity persisted all the way through the last week of his life and beyond. It exists even to this day. About this time every year, magazines pop up in the checkout line of the grocery stores with Jesus on the cover asking, who was Jesus of Nazareth? Well, guess what? The Bible tells us the Bible tells us who he was and who he is. He was and is the long-awaited Messiah come from heaven. The king has come, and Jesus not only fulfills the role of king, that faithful son to whom God the Father would give all authority in heaven and on earth after his resurrection, but he's also the prophet because he preached and he embodied the very word of God. He was the word of God. And the shadows of the Old Testament promised one who would be prom prophet, priest, and king. And we'll focus our attention next week on his priestly role as his death atones for our sins and reconciles us to the Father. But here we see Jesus, the rejected prophet of Nazareth. And now we have a choice to reject him or to believe him.
to reject him or to receive him as the true prophet sent by the, by the Father. Believe who he said he was and who he demonstrated himself to be. He's the only one who can save us. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus came first to deliver his people spiritually. That is, to redeem us from our sin through his death and resurrection. But he's not finished. He's not done yet. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will come back in power and wrath. And he will deliver us from our physical enemies as he establishes his kingdom in full. Consider this prophecy from Revelation 19. This is Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. John writes of his vision. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh, that humble servant on a donkey is coming back. And when he does, it will be as the conquering king on his steed. No one's going to be making fun of his ride then. No, when Jesus comes, it will be far, far more impressive. And it will also be far too late to change your mind on what you think about him. So if you have not done so yet, if you have not done so yet, it is not too late now to join the throngs throughout history and around the globe who have received him as Messiah. Do it today. Do it today. The day of salvation has arrived because King Jesus has come. So behold him. Believe him and beg for his mercy. And when you do, he's sure to grant it because he's the God of grace. He's eager to show his mercy for your sin. And for all of us who've already placed our trust in Jesus, we can find great comfort in the fact that every tragic transgression ever committed will be paid for, either by Jesus the son of David, or by the one who committed that sin. Because our God is just. Now you may notice that the only words that Jesus says in this passage are some instructions about a donkey. But despite his few words, he makes a demonstrative declaration in his fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. He is proclaiming that he is the humble king and the prophet like Moses. He came once, and he promised he would come again in spectacular fashion as king of kings and lord of lords. As Israel's king, as the king of the nations, as the king of all nature, as the king over the universe that he created. And he will not be in disguise. No one will miss the day of his coming in the clouds. And until that day, unknown to us all, there is a stay. And he's ready to save all those who behold him as Lord, who believe him as prophet, and who receive him as their Savior and as their treasure. So behold him. 
believe him and beg for his mercy. And when you do, you can be sure to join another future scene in Revelation from Revelation chapter 7. John writes, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, what a celebration that will be. And we will wave palm branches But there will be no confusion about what we need saving from or who has done the saving. May we live with that conviction now and every day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for saving us from our sin. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for weaving together all of history so that We might not miss Jesus as Messiah, as the only one who could save us from our sins. And Jesus, we thank you for coming to us as a humble king, as the perfect prophet. And thank you that you are coming back. And when you do, it will be glorious. And I thank you for all who have put their trust in your name. You will save us. And God, I pray for anyone in this room who's wrestling with whether or not they can trust you. I pray, Spirit, that you would let them know, Father, Son, and Spirit, you are trustworthy. You're reliable. You can save and you will save through the blood of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.